But a few years ago, there were some reports that were made about some very fine art. In fact, in a, a museum in Amsterdam, uh, a man came in and slashed one of Rembrandt's, Rembrandt's fine paintings. It was called Nightwatch. He just took a knife and slashed it and, uh, you know, and, and did some severe damage before the authorities caught him you know, and drug him off. Uh, a few months later, or a short time later, uh, a man came into uh, a museum in Italy and uh, slashed one of Michelangelo's great sculptures, the Pieta, and uh, just hit it with a hammer, just beat it and beat it and beat it. And now I'm going to ask you a question. What do you think they did with those pieces of art? They destroyed them? Yeah, they restored them. They got all these fine experts. I mean, uh, just highly talented people in their field. And they came back and restored those pieces of art. I'm going to ask you a question today. What kind of art are you? Just think for a minute. Don't say it out loud. <laughs> but what kind of art are you, and have you been damaged? Now, some of us have been damaged, let's be honest, by outside sources, okay, outside parties. Some of us have been damaged. In fact, I'm going to say all of us have been damaged by ourselves. Okay? How many of you here, and, and raise your hands, how many of you have ever made a bad mistake? <laughs> how many of you have made a good mistake? Yeah, I dated Cindy, and uh, for her, that was a huge mistake. For me, that was really good. But God sees you as one of these fine works of art, and he has done something to restore you. Uh, none of us are what we orig were originally intended to be. When God created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he wanted something that was real special. He wanted to be able to walk hand in hand with Adam and Eve. He wanted to be able to talk with them. He wanted to have full disclosure and when you think about the aspect of nakedness in the garden, it's really not just about physical nakedness. It's about nakedness of the soul so that people can see who you really are. Now, how many of you wear fig leaves today? Yeah, we all do, you know, because we're afraid if people saw us as we really are, they might not like us. I remember dating Cindy and, uh, you know, man, I cleaned up. I, I put on my best behavior because I wanted to impress her. In fact, I wanted to marry her. And uh, I was afraid that if she knew who I really was, you know, what I had all my background and everything, she might not like me so much. So, man, I put on all these fig leaves and kept things dis, uh, undisclosed and, and stuff so that she wouldn't really know who I really was. And, you know, I read that passage in Genesis, you know, where Adam and Eve were ashamed and they made fig leaves to cover up their nakedness. Now, it's not just that physical nakedness, like I said, but it's nakedness of the soul. Now, God sees our souls. He sees the nakedness of our souls. Does he still love you? Absolutely, he does. And we're going to come to the passage of Scripture here today uh, that concludes the book of Mark. Uh, but before we do that, I want to identify some people that are here with us. You know, we have all kinds of people here with us. Some people here are very faithful Christians. Okay, we have faithful Christians in the house, don't we? <laughs> and we're hoping that it's us. Okay, we also have some people that are kind of half-hearted followers of Christ. Now, none of us that show up on Sunday are half-hearted, are we? I don't know. You know, we have to be honest. There are some people that are just kind of half-hearted followers of Christ. Uh, and when we look at them, what do we do? We judge them. Oh, gosh, it got really quiet here. Because we don't judge people, do we? You know, but sometimes, I don't know. There are some people that are here that, are, that don't know Christ at all. You know, that have been far from Christ and, uh, in fact, might not know much about him. So um, 
there's some of those people. There's some people that know Jesus, that have followed him, but have yet fallen away. And so today I want to speak to all segments of, this, of the group here uh, about that because the title of today's message is He is Alive. In Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, it says this. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, what do we learn from this empty tomb? In fact, I thought about today titling the message, The Big Empty. Uh, you know, but, you know, decorum called me back from that a little bit. But what do we really learn today from the empty tomb? And I just want to briefly go over three things that we learn from the empty tomb. Number one, Jesus has not abandoned you. Jesus has not abandoned you. Have you ever been abandoned? You know, I remember one time in the grocery store with my mom uh, as a little kid, and uh, I, I always held on to the cart until we got to the cereal aisle. And when we got to the cereal aisle, uh, and advertisers do this weird thing. They put the kids' cereal down at the very bottom, you know, on the bottom shelves where the kids can see them, and they always have whoever their character is with big eyes kind of looking up. And man, those guys got my attention. And I started looking at the cereal and thinking, boy, I'd like that kind or I'd like that kind. And, um, and I, I just kind of, you know, thought, man, this would be a great place for me to camp out and have cereal. And pretty soon, you know, I reached back up and grabbed the cart and we went on our way. And as I looked up, the lady pushing the cart was not my mom. <laughs> my mom had moved on and another lady had parked in my space and I grabbed her cart. And I remember the panic that I experienced at that moment. Man, I thought, <gasps> where has my mom gone? What has happened to me? And what are going to be the consequences when she finds me? You know, I was panicked. I, was, I had been abandoned. Now, a lot of times we think that's what God does to us, don't we? When we mess up, when we walk away, when we, when we maybe abandon him, we think, oh, he has abandoned us. And so therefore, we kind of play this game and we walk around with, with no guidance. We, we are not connected to Jesus anymore. Uh, but in Mark 14, verses 27 through 28, at the end of the com first communion, I, I always like thinking about this passage of scripture. Some people call it the Last Supper and some people call it the First Communion. You know, last, first, whatever it might be. But when Jesus has communion, when he has the Lord's Supper, however you call that, whenever he has that meal with his disciples, at the end of it, he says this to them, you will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Now, Jesus tells his disciples, don't worry. It may look like I'm, that you're abandoned, but you are not. I'm going to rise again. I'm going to go into Galilee and I'm going to be there waiting for you. 
Now, if you know much about the disciples, you probably know what they did when Jesus was crucified. Okay? What did they immediately do? They went back to fishing. They went back to their old standby uh, mode of work. And, and I can only imagine the depression that was in their hearts and the way that they felt about the stuff around them. Because now Jesus has left them. And I think there might have been a sense of abandonment that they felt. But Jesus had really kind of predisposed them to believe, I'm going to go ahead of you to Galilee. I'm going to meet up with you again. Do not worry. Now, on this occasion, when Jesus tells them this at the, at the first communion, the last supper, uh, Peter says, I'm never going to leave you. Don't worry. Things are going to be fine. Jesus says, I'm going to die. I'm going to be dying on a cross. Three days later, I'm going to raise. Uh, he says, oh, man, that bad stuff's not going to happen to you. And Jesus says something to Peter in that passage of Scripture. He says, you know what, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows the second time. Now, I think that Peter just kind of put that out of his mind because he's thinking that'll never happen. That will never happen. I will never abandon you. I will never forsake you. I will not leave you. Well, lo and behold, Jesus is crucified and or actually he's arrested. And as he's arrested, he's taken into, into custody, and Peter is compelled. He just can't help himself. He follows at a distance. He follows Jesus at a distance. And pretty soon, we find that, that he does exactly like Jesus has told him he's going to do. Now, if you have forsaken Jesus, you know it. Peter knew it. And I believe that for each and every one of us, when we walk away from God a little bit, when we walk away from his leadership, when we walk away from his presence, we know it. It's not just, oh, gee, I wonder what happened. You know, we know it. And I, people say, you know, I don't know how to find God again. And I always ask them, where did you leave him? He didn't leave you, but where did you leave him? Go back to where you left him. There you will find him. What were the circumstances that caused you to leave? And go back, visit that, and seek the forgiveness and the restoration that God provides. In Hebrews 13, 5, the writer of Hebrews says this, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Now, the writer of Hebrews is a pretty smart guy. He knows there's some temptations in life that could cause us to walk away from God independence will cause you to walk away from God. Did you know that? I mean, that's one of the hallmarks of our nation is independence. Nobody can tell us what to do. And we grow up with that, you know, reinforced in our lives all the time. But God really wants the church and our relationship to him to be built on what? Dependence. And not dependence in a bad way. When we come to the body of Christ, we really want to be interdependent. I want to count on you to be able to do your part for God's work, you know, and the giftedness that you have. And I want you to count on me to do my part and the way God has gifted me to operate within the body of Christ. And that's called interdependence. We become one in Christ. We are one body in Christ, each one of us doing our part so that the body can be made shown to the world to be the body of Christ. Now, how does God show up in the world today? Don't you wish that sometimes God would just kind of show up on, his, on your TV? You know, every morning you could get up at 6, 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning, 8, 10.30, whatever. Uh, but and when you first get up, wouldn't it be wonderful to turn on to channel G-O-D and be able to say, okay, here's God's message for me. Okay, here's what I need to do today. Here's everything. I could jot it down, maybe put it in my day planner or whatever, and just go out and do that. But how does God show up? 
God shows up in a variety of ways. One is that he shows up through the Holy Spirit of God living in you. Okay? His spirit identifies with your spirit, that you're children of God, and then he, he leads you into all truth. He shows you things. Okay? Now, also, the way God shows up in the world around us is through the church. The church is the body of Christ. And so when the church responds to hurricane floods, when the church responds to earthquakes, when the church responds to tragedy, when the church responds to uh, civic responsibility, that's when God shows up. And so I want you to know that we as the body of Christ have the opportunity to display him to the world. Now, the writer of Hebrews knows that there's something that could get in the way of that, and that's called independence. Independence can get in the way of our dependence on God and our interdependence with each other. Now, he says that it shows up this way. Independence will probably lead you to a love for money. Because now, if I have money, I can provide everything I need. We think. We think. Probably not really true, is it? You know, money doesn't provide everything you need. I want you to know that. Okay? And, and let me say this at the outset here. Some people have accused me of saying, you know, that if you're rich, you're not a Christian. I don't believe that. I hope that Christians are the richest people in the world, okay, and that we have money to give to causes for, of Christ, and that we have money to make him manifest and made him known. But I do believe that, when we, that our love is what is paramount here. Our love for the money will cause us to leave Christ and pursue money. That's where we cross the line, okay? Now, the writer of Hebrews says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have because then you will have greater dependence on God and less dependence on your physical wealth. Okay, And he goes on to say, For God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Therefore, if God never leaves us nor forsakes us, how much money do you need? Enough to pay the bills, enough to take care of business. And you know, I'm not saying we don't need money. But I'm saying that the love for that money and the dependence upon it will grow less and less when we realize that God is with us and that God has not forsaken us. It's all, you know, it, it, it's all tied into this thing that I believe about the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God takes away worry, right? The so, if God let me go through this difficult time or whatever it is, I don't have to worry about it. God's holding me by the hand to go through it. God's helping me. He's going to see me through to the other side. So therefore, I don't need to fret and worry same thing with money. I don't need to fret nor worry about money because God will never leave me. God will never forsake me. So I want you to know, God has not abandoned you. No matter where you are in this spectrum of faith to no faith, wherever you are in that spectrum, God has not left you. God will not forsake you. There's a second thing that we learn here, too, from the empty tomb. And that is that Jesus desires to restore you. How many of you feel like you are the very best person that you could ever be? Okay, probably not very many of us. You know, we could all use some improvement. I remember Cindy and I bought a car one time. In fact, we bought it before we got married. Just before we got married, we bought this 1958 Porsche. And uh, we were, I'm going to restore it. So we bought all these parts and restored it and everything. And, uh, and, you know, when you get a car like that, it's nice. What do you want to do? You want to drive it. You want to drive it. And what I found is that when you drive a restored vehicle, you are in a constant state of restoration. Okay? In fact, I let Cindy's dad drive it one time, and he blew up the transmission. And it wasn't funny, Gus. 
In fact, I'm still mad at her about that. <laughs> no, I'm not. But the truth is, is that when you get something that's restored, it's in constant need of restoration. How many of you have been restored and feel like you are in a constant need of restoration? You know, it doesn't just happen once. It just doesn't happen. So I want you to go that God desires to restore you. It says in Mark 14, 54. Peter followed him at a distance. Remember, Jesus is arrested and Peter is compelled. He just has to follow. So Peter followed at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. Now he's, he's so compelled to do this. He's, he wants to know what's going to happen to Jesus. What's going to happen to Jesus? So several times people come up to him and say, hey, aren't you one of the disciples? Oh, were you with Jesus? Nope. In fact, one time it says he curses. And says, absolutely not. And I'm just going to say that. I don't know what Hebrew curse words are. But anyway, he, he does that, or Aramaic even. Uh, but he does that, and so he, he denies. Nope, I don't know him. Two other times, okay, I can imagine after that first time, he hears, what does he hear in the background? Cock-a-doodle-doo. You know, oh, that might, you know, that would come, maybe cause you to think about it. But he goes on, and pretty soon another person comes up. Hey, aren't you one of them? I recognize your accent. Aren't you from Galilee? Aren't you one of them? No, 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 I don't know him. Third time, he denies Jesus again. Now, the third time, he hears the rooster crow very loudly. And all of a sudden, he is filled with anguish. Filled with anguish. Now, in Mark 14, 72, it says, Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And what was his response? He broke down and wept. And when you read this in the Greek translation, it means he wept bitterly. He, I mean, he was grief stricken. He was hit at the core of his being when he realized what he had done. And he weeps bitterly. Now, Jesus is kind of a compelling figure, isn't he? Now, Peter was so compelled by Jesus, he followed him right into the courtyard of the high priest and wanted to see what's going to happen. Remember the ladies when they come out to anoint his body, you know, on the, on the uh, Resurrection Sunday? They come out to anoint his body. They're compelled to do that because Jesus had meant so much to them. There's this compelling thing that's very attractive about Jesus. He just drew crowds. Remember when he was feeding 5,000, 4,000? He could draw crowds because he was so compelling. He would challenge the thinking of the day. People would walk away and say, where did this man learn this stuff? He is so compelling. And so today, we ought to be equally compelled. When we see the life of Jesus, if you're not compelled by Jesus, I want you to read some scripture. I want you to read through the Gospel of John and just say, man, he did some incredible things. He healed people. He provided. He did miraculous things. He was a man of, of great teaching. And he didn't have a whole lot of means, did he? But he had great wealth. People recognized the value that he had. And so therefore, maybe it's the realization, you know, that's the compelling thing is maybe it's the realization that he can do something that no man can do. He is a class by himself. He can forgive sin. And you can imagine Peter, after he's denied him three times, is in great need of the forgiveness of sin. And I want to draw your attention ahead a little ways, you know, and, and not in the Gospel of Mark, but you'll find elsewhere in the Gospels that Jesus shows up as the guys are out fishing. And he has a little conversation with Peter. And he asks Peter, he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know, and this is after Jesus' resurrection. He says, yes, of course, you, you know I love you. I'll feed my sheep. And he says it to Peter again, hey, do you really love me? 
And you can imagine Peter saying, I told you once, Lord, that I loved you. And yeah, I do, I do, I love you. Okay, feed my lambs. So Jesus asked him a third time, he says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Okay, then feed my sheep. It's kind of interesting that Peter denied Jesus three times. And three times Jesus gives him the opportunity to affirm his love. Is there forgiveness in Jesus? Absolutely. You know, sometimes we formalize forgiveness and we say, well, I don't know if he was forgiven or not. He never asked for forgiveness and Jesus never said, I forgive you. But Jesus in relationship with us will show us ways that we are forgiven. Now, I'm not saying you ought not to confess your sin. I think you ought to confess your sin to God. Confess your sin to each other when you hurt each other. Um, but you ought to confess that and you ought to receive forgiveness. But Jesus is the, he's the perfect forgiver. And he forgives Peter these three times. Peter was broken by the realization of what he had done. I mean, he was truly, severely broken. And Jesus gives him the opportunity to reaffirm that love and to receive the forgiveness that only Jesus can, can give. But I want you to know that the first step to restoration is the realization of where I am. Where I am. How close to God am I? How connected to God am I? How far from God am I? What have I done? Where have I been? But I want you to know that God forgives you no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter who you've been with. God forgive, will forgive you, but he wants you to recognize where you are. Think about your relationships with each other. You know, when you, when you get crossways with, with the person that you love, uh, you want them to know that you recognize, you take ownership for your responsibility. Okay, you have responsibility in relationship. And so we want the person we love to know that we accept responsibility. So uh, I remember early in my life, it was easy for me to say, oh, just forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. And uh, Cindy got smart to that. And she said, forgive you for what? Oh, uh, uh, well, uh, uh. You know, it gets harder when you get specific, doesn't it? But when we get with God, God wants some specifics, I think, just so that we recognize, not that he needs to know because he already knows, but just so that he knows that we recognize our responsibility. We have walked away from God. God, I left you back here when I did this, this, and this, when I counted on this or that that was contrary to you. And he wants us to, to be able to be honest with where we are, what we've done. So the first step to restoration is the awareness of what broke that relationship. Okay? Recognize it, take responsibility for it, and seek forgiveness of it. I remember uh, growing up, you know, I had a great fear of my mom. Anybody here have a fear of their mom when you're a kid? You know, maybe I'm alone. But uh, my mom knew everything. My mom knew everything, everything that I had ever done, it seemed like. You know? And so it, it, I was never compelled, though, to fess up because I thought, Maybe there's a one in a hundred chance that my mom won't know about this. And why do I want to get into trouble unnecessarily? And you've all heard of my, my experience in high school when I, when I uh, didn't want to go to my English class, which was the last period of the day, so I'd cut and go get my girlfriend and go to the beach. And uh, my mom, you know, I, she didn't know that. So one day she was driving down the street, and I'm driving down, and and she's in the left turn pocket. Now, this is in Orange County, California. Okay? You don't see people you know. That doesn't happen down there. But I'm driving down the street, and she's in the left turn pocket coming my way. And I drive through, and <laughs> I look away, but I know she sees me. 
So she busted me and said, you know, I got, you know, whatever I got. So I got smarter. That didn't deter me. I got smarter. And I said, okay, I'm going to take the freeway around this way the next time. And so I cut my class again and went around. And, uh, and my mom gets this thing in the mail. And in the mail, it was a, uh, I think it was UCLA, was doing a traffic survey. Now, as a kid, my car was registered in my parents' name. And so they got the survey. It said, your car was spotted southbound on the Newport Freeway da, 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 at 1020 Wednesday morning. She looks at it. No, I wasn't there. They made a mistake. And then she looked at the license number on it. Oh, that's Mike's car. So I came in and said, hey, uh, she called out the date. How was school on that day? I thought, oh, it was great, great. Well, here, you might want to respond to this mail. And I read it. I go, oh, no. Now, I say all of that to say God loved me enough to give me a mom that would say, hey, you can't do that here. Okay? You can't do that here. You're going to be a responsible young adult. you got to learn to take care of your business. And God loved me enough to give me a mom that would do that. Now, what has he done for you? Hebrews 12, 6. He says this, my son, my daughter, my loved one, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastens everyone he accepts as his son. God does that. Now, sometimes God uses moms. Okay, he used my mom. Sometimes God will use friends. Okay, sometimes God will use a husband, use a wife, use a son, use a daughter to bring that to our awareness. But what we must do is take responsibility and acknowledge our participation in the crime, so to speak. And so therefore, be honest and confess to God your sin so that you can be healed. There's a number three here that we, re- we learn from the empty tomb, and that is that Jesus has a plan for you. Jesus has a plan for you. Did you know that? God has, knows the number of your days. He knows when you're going to be born. He knows when you're going to die. He knows what you're going to do in the meantime. Now, just because he knows what you're going to do does not necessarily mean that that's his plan for you. Did God know that I was going to ditch school back in senior in high school? He knew that. Was that his plan for me? No, but he knew that. So let me say that just because God knows something doesn't mean that's his perfect plan for you. But he does have a plan for you. Okay? God knows the number of your days. He knows what he wants you to do. In fact, God has given you a special gift. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God's given you a thing that's called a spiritual gift. I want you to discover that. I want you to develop that. And I want you to use that gift. Because that's when you function best in the body of Christ. In Luke 22, verses 31 through 32, and this is back in the, in the Gospel of Luke, obviously. Peter, once again is saying, you know, nothing, you know, I'm not going to fail, you're not going to fail, nothing bad's going to happen, and he goes on. And he says, Jesus says this to, to Simon. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. That was God's plan for Peter. He says, I know that this bad stuff's going to happen to you. And does God know the bad stuff that's going to happen to your life? 
Does he know the bad mistakes you're going to make? Does he know the consequences that are going to Absolutely. He says, but I have prayed for you. And when you have turned back, when you have confessed that sin, when you've repented of it and followed Christ, when that happens, I want you to strengthen each other. One of the sad things about the Christian church is that people outside the church believe that Christians ought to be and should be. And sometimes we project that we're perfect. You know, I hope that you're not perfect, because if you're perfect, you're going to ruin this church because you're the only one, you know, and you're going to contend with Jesus for the top spot. So I want you to know today that God has a plan for you. He has a plan for your life. He has a plan for your restoration. He has a plan for everything that's happened up to this point. And so therefore, he wants to use that in your life. And he wants you to use that to strengthen other people. So one of the things I think we ought to do is every once in a while, find someone with whom we can bear our soul. You know, I've struggled with this. I've struggled with that. I've been here. I've been there. I've done this. I've done that. And I need to cleanse my soul. And I want you to know that I'm not a perfect person. But when this happened to me, here's what God did. Here's what God said. Here's what God brought into my life. And this is how God restored me. And you know what happens when, that, when you do that? Other people realize God is a God of forgiveness, not an expector of perfection. God is not a God who expects perfection from his children. Therefore, quit trying to be perfect. Well, I shouldn't say that. Try to be perfect. You know? But recognize that you're not. And when you're not, seek the forgiveness of God. Seek the forgiveness of the other people. Last Sunday, we talked about communion. As we talked about communion, we talked about when you come to worship and when you find there in your place of worship that somebody has something against you, you ought to leave worship. You ought to leave worship. Go make it right with your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, whoever it is. Make it right with them. Then come back and make your offering of worship to God. God says, I want you to be right with people. I want you to be right with me. And when you think about righteousness, the one ingredient that we need to get to heaven is righteousness, right? And so therefore, righteousness means being right with God through the forgiveness of your sin, being right with the people around you through the forgiveness of your sin and doing what's right with them and doing God's work in their life. The disciple that failed so miserably, he's going to go on to be the apostle who does several things. Number one, he's going to be the leader of the apostles. Peter's going to lead the apostles right after Jesus' death. In fact, he's going to perform a lot of miracles. He preached a powerful sermon at Pentecost. And if you read in the book of Acts, the beginning of the book of Acts, man, he has preached a powerful sermon about Jesus and about God's activity in the world. And he does that. He set the world on fire for the cause of Christ. You know, just when Jesus dies and you think, boy, this, this light's going to go out. It's, gonna, it's, it's a flash in the pan. It was cool while it lasted. Now it's gone. Boy, the disciples picked up the ball, even though each one of them had failed. And Jesus said, each one of you is going to leave me. You're going to forsake me. You're going you're to walk away. But every one of them, minus Judas, every one of them was an integral part of establishing the church of God that we now get a chance to participate in today. I pray that today you would ask yourself a couple of questions. First question is, um, where am I with God? You know, where am I? Am I close to him and am I pursuing him? Am I following him dearly? Okay, number one. Number two, if I'm not, what can I do about that? 
I need to, maybe if I knew him earlier in life, I need to go back to that place where I left him and find him there and hold his hand and walk with him. Seek the forgiveness for all of the things that I've done that forsook him. Thirdly, you might not have ever made a commitment to Christ in your entire life. And you say, today is the day. I would like to make a commitment to the, to the Jesus Christ to be the Lord of my life. And as you do that, you recognize, oh, I've done some things wrong. I've sinned. Number two, Jesus wants to forgive me of that sin. So I'm going to ask him to. I'm going to ask him to forgive me. And then I'm going to make a commitment to become a real good follower of his. I'm going to learn from the Bible. I'm going to learn from Bible study. I'm going to learn from coming to church. I'm going to do all the stuff. And coming to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a chicken coop makes you a chicken. But the truth is, is that if you're a follower of Christ, you want to come and be part of the body of Christ. Okay? So I'm not, I don't want to put that out there as a lot. You know, if you come every Sunday, then you're going to heaven. That doesn't happen. But, but be a follower of Christ, having a heart that wants to learn. And so this morning, wherever you are, whatever you've done, whatever position you find yourself in with Christ today, I pray that you take the next step toward him.